0: Over, focusing on frontline praying, right? There's maintenance prayers. There's maintenance prayers that we talk about our daily life, but then there's frontline praying, which is specifically focusing on kingdom advancement of God breaking in in redemptive and reconciling ways, and that's what we've been praying for. We've asked God to make Redeemer a center for gospel renewal in Waco. We've been asking God to make us a part of an expanding gospel movement in Waco. Petitioning God to allow us to make room for others, more people to experience Jesus and his salvation. The unchurched, right? The overchurched, the overlooked, Christian and skeptic. Now watch how I do this. I thought this was really cool. We want to do this in Jerusalem, our Jerusalem, which is our immediate sphere of relationships, we want to do this in Samaria, which is the immediate 2,000 folks that are moving into this area as we speak. And we want to do this to the ends of the earth, which is the whole city. How are we going to make room for others? By building a 750-seat worship hall right off that building over there. That's how. Do I have your attention? Oh, I bet I do. Don't I? Yeah, so let's keep going. We've been petitioning God to provide... Room for existing ministries in children and youth. And to expand those ministries of children and youth. What does that mean? It means the youth take this building. The children, which if you've ever gone down there and worked in the nursery, if you've ever poked your head in, you probably will get run over by someone, a little person that's about two feet tall. They are everywhere. They would take that whole building over there and then the adults will worship one service together again and one service right out there and we'd have that for the adults in a new building. Well, after a month of frontline praying, we're going forward. We're trusting God to see this happen. We are going to expend ourselves in something that's much bigger than us to literally trust God to become a center for gospel renewal in Waco. That God builds this church. And I want you to know that no one on the leadership team is freaking out about this. It's a huge endeavor. It's something only God can do. Only He can provide the money. Only He can provide this at all. And none of us are freaking out. We're actually pretty excited. Because there are times in your life where you really, genuinely have to trust God to do something only He can do. And He either does it or He doesn't. If He doesn't, we go to a, a different direction. We wait. But we're going for it. And I want you to know that. And so a building team has been put together. We're meeting with architects this week. Plans are being drawn. Costs are being calculated. Finance team is punching the numbers. We will start giving now to invest in this advance the kingdom work to become a center for gospel renewal in Waco. Pastor Yotis is a Greek pastor in our denomination. He works for MTW, Mission to the World. Uh, he is a Greek He's not an American posing as a Greek. He is a Greek, indigenous, national pastor in the center of Athens in one of the few evangelical churches in their country. Well, Jason McGregor brought him to Baylor, and he spoke to us at midweek this past week, and then I had lunch with him and a bunch of other folks at Baylor this past Thursday. His church is in the center of Athens. He has the most envious study in the world for any pastor. He looks out his study, the center of Athens, Acts 17, The Arabic how do you pronounce that? Arap, no, 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 Arrow. someone help me. Thank you. That thing, right? That historic thing. I practiced on that too, man. I sat there last night going, aro, and it sounded just like it did just now. (laughs) This is what he said. He said, we have been a comfortable church. He told everybody here that was here on Wednesday night, he says, we've been a comfortable church walled off from the city just like a typical PCA church or a Western church in the United States. And what happened to Greece? Do you remember what happened a couple years ago? The economy bottomed out. They have 60% unemployment in their country. What happened to, what happened in the world, in the Middle East? They had a refugee crisis. They had thousands and thousands caused by ISIS and wars of refugees pouring into Athens, pouring into Greece, coming into an economy that's 60% unemployment. There's a group called the Anarchists that arose out of Greece that are just gaining members daily, and they are, they are moving through the streets, and his, his church is in the center of it, and they had their windows blown out. First time, they fixed it. Second time, they fixed it. Third time, they fixed it. Around the fourth time, he told his elders, we're not going to fix it this time. We're just going to let it go and we're going to have church as is. They had church with blown out windows, debris all over their church, this historic building in the center of Athens while all around them in the city with the anarchists and the refugees pouring in is a swirling, chaotic mess. And he says to his congregation, windows blown out, glass on the ground, wood broken everywhere. And he says, this is what he said, since we haven't been going to the city, God has brought the city to us. Can you hear it? (laughs) They have planted four churches in this area, two or three of them Iranian churches of people that are coming to faith, Muslims. It is amazing that the anarchists are starting to listen to them because they're the ones that are taking care of the refugees. His church is taking care of the refugees, right? So here's what I said. When I heard that, you know what I said to myself? It's time to get to work. It's time to get to work. It's time to get to work. It's time to roll up our sleeves, and that's exactly what we're doing. We have we have been praying for a month, and it's now time, while on our knees, to work and to make it happen by the grace of God, to trust Him, to do something that's bigger than any of us. And so, are you in? Are you in? All right, open your Bibles to Luke 19, 1 through 10. When I was a kid, I couldn't wait for the summer break. Really, honestly, is there anybody here that didn't? I want to know who you are. Right? I'll give you free, five free counseling sessions, and then it's, you're on your own after that. Right? I mean, the summer was the answer to the grind of school. Summer was the answer to the quick pace of life. Summer was the answer to sleeplessness. Right? Summer was the answer to annoying people. You didn't have to see them every day, particularly your teachers or that kid in your class. It was the answer to giving margins to your life, to creating space into your life, to have some fun and some freedom and friendship and to focus and zero in on things that ultimately matter and to connect with them, right? And then summer would come and summer would never live up to my expectations. Summer always let me down. And then September would roll around and I would believe in summer all over again. And history hit repeat, repeat, repeat. Truth be told, I still believe in summer (laughs) to help me, to heal me, to create space in my life, to meet my needs. And still as an adult, every summer, summer never lives up to my expectations. Summer always lets me down. And then September rolls around. What if? What if I finally didn't believe in summer anymore? What if I finally fully felt summer's failure in my life? What would we call that experience? Answer? Disillusionment. The dictionary definition of disillusionment is the feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be, End quote. F.K.A. Twiggs, a female British musician, said, In school, I have a tough time fitting in, and dancing was my way out of being, was my way of being in my own element. As a teenager, I became a bit disillusioned with it. Even with competitions, I'd win, but still there would be tears. Best-selling author and black pastor Miles Monroe said, Young people all over the world are are very frustrated. They are very disillusioned. Many of them are turning their backs on religion. They're walking away from the faith of their parents, and most of this is because religion has failed them. And I want to say, yes, religion always fails us. Actor Matthew Davis said, To become a villain, you had to become disillusioned first. And in order to become disillusioned, you had to have been passionate about something that you believed in, but it was shaken and ripped from the grasp, from your grasp like a protagonist is ripped from the stage. The late British author J.B. Priestley said, Living in an age of advertisement, we are perpetually disillusioned. The perfect life is spread before us daily, but it changes and withers at our touch. Psychologist author and author Stanley Teitelbaum wrote an article for a psychological journal called Illusion and Disillusion: Core Issues in Psychotherapy. Throughout their lives, individuals maintain illusions about themselves and their world that sustain them and serve as an organizing principle, and serve as organizing principles in their life. But the loss of these illusions in the harsh light of reality requires a psychological negotiation with disillusionment. I want to welcome you to a story about someone who's finally got to the point of being disillusioned. And it's a good thing. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word.
1: Luke 19, 1-10 He entered Jericho and was passing through, And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, And Jesus said to him, "Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated.
0: Oh Lord, your word says, uh, "I watered pulses." He planted, Apollos watered, and you caused the growth. And so we acknowledge that we are nothing and that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we ask that you would shine and show forth your glory and your grace from this page. Leading to rest. Leading to reliance. Leading to rejoicing in you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, I want you to look at verse 1. Uh, We are told in verse 1 that Jesus was not just thinking of uh, stopping at Jericho. He was planning on passing through. Jericho is not a stop. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's the conquering Messiah. His fame is all over now. Remember when he arrives in Jerusalem, what happens? You have the the Palm Sunday, right? He is is on his way to Jerusalem. His reputation is just exploding. People are coming out to see him. He's not planning on stopping, he's planning on passing through. And it's incredible that he stops. Here's what happens on his way through Jericho is a fascinating place. Jerusalem sits 2,600 feet above sea level, Jericho sits 825 feet below sea level. It's Mount Everest in reverse. It's the lowest, one of the lowest places on the planet. Jericho is called in those days the city of Palms. It's an oasis in the middle of a desolate land. You've got desert, you've got incredible uh, rocky, craggy land all around it. Remember from Jerusalem to Jericho is a winding road that's pockmarked with caves, that's notorious for thieves and bank robbers and gangsters and thugs to rob people, kill people, steal from people. Remember when Jesus tells the story about the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan? Where was he traveling? Jerusalem to Jericho, right? Uh, But here in Jericho is this oasis of palm springs. The most famous is Elisha's spring. Gushes 1,000 gallons of water a minute. If you see pictures of it, it's this desolation, desert, craggy land. And then there's just this lush, green, fertile foliage everywhere. In Jericho. Uh, In one such lush green fertile place is a sycamore tree. Sycamore trees are the only tree in the Middle East with big green leafy leaves. Great places for hide-and-seek. Great places to hide for children. Or if you're a man who's small in stature that doesn't want to be found. Verse 3 and 4. And he was seeking, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was of small stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Disillusionment is, definition, the feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. How do we know that Zacchaeus is disillusioned? Answer? Because Zacchaeus has everything, and he's still not content. He's still looking for something else. When Jesus comes in, he's thinking, maybe. When it says he's looking for Jesus, it's in a tense that says he's been continually searching and looking. He's been waiting for him to come. Verse 2, and behold, if you have an an ESV later edition, it says behold. If you have a newer edition, it's not in there. In the original language, behold is there. Behold means pay attention, right? And pay attention. There was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich chief tax collector. This means Zacchaeus ran Rome's taxing operation for Jericho. He was the CEO of the tax franchise for Rome in Jericho on the west side of the Jordan River. He had the whole land towards Jerusalem. Rome taxed their colonies. In other words, they they stole their wealth when they conquered a nation, they colonized it, put in Roman lo- uh, leaders and they took the wealth, took it back to Rome, to its citizens and made it rich and impoverished their colonizations, their colonies, kept them subjugated. Now, what's fascinating is they didn't take Roman citizens to do this, to be the tax people. They took locals, collaborators. So a Jewish person Helps the abuse and oppression of his own country. He gets rich off the abuse and the oppression of the Romans, right? And not only that, he's the chief. He's the head. He's a really rich man. I want you to think of Jews helping Nazis. I want you to think of parents that pimp their children. I want you to think of uh, corporations and uh, robber barons who buy out companies and then intentionally destroy them to destroy them. Do you know what would happen in World War II if you caught a collaborator, let's say a French collaborator with the Nazis? Let's say it's a woman. They would shave her head, strip off her clothes, and walk her through the streets, and they would pelt her with food and rocks. Maybe she survived, maybe she didn't. One gospel scholar says about Zacchaeus's work, why would anyone take such a job as a tax collector? That's a great question, right? What could seduce a man to betray his country and his family and live as a pariah in his own society? What could do that? The answer, money. Money could do that. Verse 2, he was a chief tax collector And was rich. There's actually a play on words here. He's a chief sinner is what's being said here. And a rich one at that. But Zacchaeus doesn't seem to believe in his money anymore, does he? Do you notice what's happening here? He seems to be disillusioned with his money. Perhaps it's the guilt of betrayal. Perhaps it's the guilt of betraying his country. If you look in verse 7, he's called a sinner by his people. What that means is that he's an apostate. That means he's abandoned God and he's abandoned his people. So he's betrayed them. He's betrayed them to Rome. And perhaps the, the guilt of that is just eating away at him and he can't deal with it anymore and he's becoming disillusioned. Perhaps it's the abuse that he is, he's partaken of. That he's impoverished people and kept them poor. Like verse 8, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I now give to the poor. The people he's made poor. Perhaps it's the guilt of abuse. Perhaps it's the guilt of betrayal. Perhaps it's the guilt of fraud and just stealing from people, right? Look at verse 8. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it four, fourfold. And perhaps, maybe even mostly, it's the pain of relational wreckage, of being relationally rejected. I mean, look, Zacchaeus, the common, the common interpretation of this passage is that he's a wee little man because he's a wee little man he can't see. Right? Can't see through the crowd. He can't see Jesus, not because he's short. He can't see Jesus because of the crowd. The crowd hates him despises him. If he shows up without his praetorian guard, his Roman guards, and he shows up alone And because he's a man of small stature and you've got a lot of big people around, he becomes an unsolved murder in town. A long list of unsolved mysteries. So whatever the reason, whatever the circumstance, money's let Zacchaeus down. He's desperate, he's disillusioned, verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. This is a story about someone who's finally reached the point of being disillusioned. And it's a good thing. But what about those of us who are disillusioned with God? How How do we deal with that one? first, there's several kinds of disillusionment. There's the kind of disillusionment with God that happens, there's a good book written on it. I can't remember her name at the moment, but she, she titled it, When Life and Beliefs Collide. When that happens, there's, there's a sense in which life doesn't work out the way we want it to, and it, and it shakes our belief in God, and our beliefs in God get kind of shimmied down to their foundations, and we realize we have all these intellectual beliefs about God, but how we functionally operate, how we live daily, how we interact with people, how we interpret and relate to money, how we live with conflict, how we deal with pain and suffering. When it happens, you get shimmy down to the basics of your life. You go down to the bottom of your heart where you truly believe and where you truly operate. And what happens is life and those beliefs aren't matching. And that happens when you have headache and heartache. Hardship, rejection and failure hit, loss and pain hit, right? And when that happens, the call is to go deeper with God. The call is to take slivers of splendor of the knowledge of God, new understandings, new experiences of who God is, and to take them to those areas of your life. The call is to go places with God you've never been before. This kind of disillusionment is saying that, listen, in every single human being, you have unreached, unevangelized, 1040 windows in you. And the knowledge of God, new slivers of understanding and breathtaking realities of who God is And who he is for you needs to go to those areas, be pushed and pressed into those areas, become clear to your mind and real to your heart in those areas. And that's a level of disillusionment that's a positive level of disillusionment. When you get disillusioned, the call is God is saying to you, listen, come with me. Let me take you places you've never been before with me. No one here knows God completely, perfectly, and fully. And that means... You are always ever-growing. God is always getting bigger, brighter, and better. There's always old truths that need to be hit home. There's always new truths yet to be discovered. So that's one way. But there's another kind of disillusionment that we could call religious disillusionment. And this is the most painful of all. This is the kind of disillusionment that shatters us that hurts us very, very deeply. Dwight Schrute of The Office and Two-Face of Batman said it first. Now, I'm trying to figure out, okay, did Two-Face say it first or Dwight say it first? I don't know, but they both said it. And Batman, he had a coin. And he used to always flip it when he was going to make a decision, right? And he would say something, this is what they both said, a man makes his own luck. And so he would flip the coin knowing that it was, bo- it was heads on both sides. So he was making his own luck. He'd choose heads every time, right? A man makes his own luck. The, the religious disillusionment version is this. A man makes his own luck with God. Do you know that deep down inside you, your default mode and my default mode in living life is that we think we control God. And that we do so by our performance. So... You and I actually think down at the operating principles of our heart, and if our heart's left to itself, it's going to do this every time. We think we control how close we get to God. We think we're in control of our closeness with God. We think we're in control of our spiritual growth. We think we're in control of God's love and acceptance of us. We think we're in control of His blessings his personal blessings, his relational blessings, his material blessings. (laughs) We think we invite Jesus into our heart and we keep him there. And Jesus shows up and completely turns all of that inside and out with Zacchaeus. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Those of you who were here last week, you hear that must, that's the same Greek word that was used with the Samaritan when it said that he must pass through Samaria. It's this divine necessity. This is divine compulsion. Zacchaeus, hurry down. I have to stay with you. Jesus invites Zacchaeus into his heart. What's happening here is absolutely breathtaking because when important people would come to a city in the ancient world, it's kind of like similar today. You have an important person come to a town. And they'd come to the town and they'd be greeted at the, at the front of the town by the important people of the city. The important people of the city would introduce and they would greet. And then they would turn and they would lead them through town to a great banquet hall to throw a great party. And of course, what happens, the town and the crowds, they gather around to see this important person. I, don't, I couldn't remember where it was, honey, but we were somewhere just recently. I think it was in London. We were in London, and we were walking by, and we saw the red ta- or the yellow tape out there, and we saw the red carpets rolled out, and I said to the crowd, I said, what's going on? Oh, there's some actors that are going to be showing up. So what do we do? Where are they? Right? Just like the thousands of people that are standing around. It's no different. You want to see a celebrity. You come to a town, you're an important person, you attract a crowd. Now latch on to it that you're the believed-to-be Messiah, the Davidic-like king who will overthrow Rome. And you're on your way to Jericho. That's the common understanding of Jesus. And so the crowds there, right? And all of this is going on. And Zacchaeus was planning on the crowd dispersing by the time it got to the edge of town. Because remember, Jesus was passing through. He wasn't stopping. See, the sycamore trees were on the outside of town because sycamore trees had these huge roots that grew on top of the land. You couldn't put roads over them. You couldn't build houses on them. They had those big green leafy leaves. And so he's in the sycamore patch on the outskirts of town. And he was counting on the crowd to stop at the edge of town. But it didn't. And the crowd sees Zacchaeus hiding in the tree. You want to know how Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name? It's not because he exercised divine power. It's because the crowd was using four letter words chanting his name. Bloodlust was in the air. The smell of violence was so thick you could cut it. Ancient world uh, customs and culture scholar, a guy named Dr. Kenneth Bailey for the Middle East. This is what he says when when Jesus stops and sees Zacchaeus in the tree and the crowd is chanting Zacchaeus' name and they want a piece of him. Here's what